Are you planning on going to the moon? <laughs> I myself, I don't think I'm qualifying for a number of reasons. Uh, but I, uh, if you ask if I'm for sending people, man, back to the moon, I'm all for it. You are? Not... The, the arguments are manifold. Some of them is scientific. Some of them is, you know, just human nature. Just let's do it. Let's uh, let's see how we can uh, have a footprint bigger than Earth in the solar system. What else do you think we would have to learn before going to the moon? If you could oh. address one question, what would it be? Really? Yeah. The one question I should is 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 uh, the will of the nation, or the or determination to just do it as opposed to getting bogged down in, in nickel and dime type of arguments, oh, that we need the money for this and we can't invest in that. If there is one nation on earth that could afford and capable doing it, that's us. And is there something you think we need to know before we do? So, for instance, you'd like to know how frequently these deadly, so, deadly particles or deadly pebbles are so, so the moon surface. That, that's an interesting question. Of course, we had a dozen people walking on the surface of the moon and they safely returned. So we would start small and we start building up the knowledge as we go. I don't think that's a I don't think there is a showstopper anywhere in the cards. If there would be will and determination to return to the moon we could we could start doing it. And then as as we as we build our habitats and we notice the the the, the possible the damage done to to your houses and hotels and and buggies then you start building maybe a, a thicker layer of lunar dust on the roof or somehow you figure out how to how, how to really how to really make life bearable and and uh, productive it's a trial and error you think we're ready to go now uh, I, it out I, I think see there are these uh, for some reason it reminds me that we have these reality shows we are sending off people to the jungle with the full expectation that they survive uh, I think that's the spirit you just have to get going have to get started and somehow you would you would learn how to scope with it the moon is harsh it's like uh, you know like working or living in a in a coal mine but it, it's doable and I think uh, there is merit if if uh, if somehow you want to learn how to get to Mars one day, there is merit to, to sustain a, a, a lunar habitat for some, some time. and then start with the moon, use it as a, a sample. I, I think as far as communication goes, you know, there's a lot of health hazard as far as not only dust and big impacts, but there is solar radiation, there are cosmic ray. Oh, there, there are all kinds of health issues. So maybe we could just learn how to deal with that how to go through like the lunar night. We never did that. All our astronauts were on the moon during the day. Uh, we never traveled through like the eclipse that's coming up or we never actually spent the lunar night. So there's a lot of technical difficulties we could learn in, in an environment that the communication is much easier. We have much more knowledge. Uh, there are no sandstorms as far as we know, like on Mars. So Mars is not only far away, but there's a lot of other difficulties to, to make life there. So I'm all for it. Uh, and then maybe find your way to to the objects near Mars that are similar to, to, to the moon, like Phobos and Deimos. They are sm small satellites that are orbiting Mars. That would be our next or maybe even just an asteroid along the way. I, I, I'm not here to set a, a, an agenda for NASA, but I, I think I think we are ready. I, there, there are no showstoppers in my mind, other than the, 
the arguments at all levels of what next and how where money should be spent and just this general difficulty of uh, making a decision and uh, have a have a long term plan that we stick with. Many of us uh, have a background in physics, not really planetary science or astrophysics. Okay. So we are more interested in, or we, we are motivated to learn about the processes themselves. So for us, the moon is a beautiful laboratory. I, I, I hate to admit I know little about the moon as, a, as an geological object and the history, and uh, I, I can hardly point out the, na- the craters and name the craters of the moon. But what I can tell you, and we could study in great detail, what happens with the surface if you hit it at high speeds. What's the yield, how much outgoing particles there will be, what's the speed and size distribution, how can you relate the cloud of particles leaving from the surface to the incoming projectile. And that's the lab. We, we try to do our best in the lab and work out the theory to reproduce what we measure in the lab. So then we have a little bit of hope or chance that we could apply then this whole theory or whole thinking how the processes go to the moon or any other object. So really studying the dust partly is geeking out on impacts. It's geeking out on ballistics and the physics of what happens yes. when one thing hits another thing. That, that's right. It's a manly thing to do. I don't know. It's a, it's a, we, uh, there is something mesmerizing because of the particles are so small and they are moving so fast. The the energy density upon impact is enormous. Yeah, the surface area divide well the total energy divided by the surface area. These these are really mighty bullets. <laughs> so and of course nature does this all the time. We are not really aware of it on on Earth because the atmosphere protects you. They burn up. They vanish. So we couldn't do the same study on Earth because it just wouldn't You, you couldn't, but believe it or not, there is a lot of uh, interest about these things, e- even on Earth, because these particles typically burn up uh, somewhere around 80 or 85 kilometers in the atmosphere. And then people notice the last 100, 150, maybe 200 years that we have these night shining clouds, no pollution clouds that are not the, the standard clouds of yours that you see at about 10 kilometer height. They are much, much higher and you could see them once the sun is about to set and you see the forward scattered light and these clouds apparently are getting uh, more massive and they are spreading from the northern regions. In the summer, more towards south, you could, there were sightings reported here in Boulder. And then in the, when we have winter on the northern hemisphere, they appear on the south. It's a wonderful phenomenon, but what I'm telling, why I'm telling is because some of my colleagues argued that's a telltale t- sign of global change. The reason these clouds are more massive than before is not that because we have more incoming dust that provides nucleation seeds for ice particles, but the temperature in this region is changing, the water content in this, cha- in this region is changing, mm. and that's the upper atmosphere, which is perhaps the first you know, the canary's mine, the first sign that something is changing in our atmosphere. If you look at right by the ocean and until you wait for the sea level to change, it's hard to notice. But in the thin high atmosphere, 85 kilometer high up, maybe you notice these changes sooner. And we try to figure out, or s- some of my colleagues will try to resolve this, whether this has to do with global change. Is this something uh, driven by whatever it is? Hopefully not because we are 
slowly but surely changing our atmosphere. And these clouds have to do with dust. Some of this, ups, oh yes, <laughs> this is the dust business you are visiting. So uh, that's right. So incoming particles, 15, 16, 20 kilometers a sec, enter the atmosphere and they burn up and recondense into smoke particles that will be nucleation sites. And in, in order to make nocturnal clouds, you need these condensation sites, you need water vapor, and you need cold temperatures. Okay. And the combination of these three would allow you to have clouds. If the clouds gets more massive, then one of these three had to change. People argue, well, cosmic dust is whatever it is. It's unlikely that in our life it's really changing a whole lot. Uh, it is possible. I don't really think so. So it could be the temperature or it could be that the water vapor content is uh, is changing. So these clouds are actually changing. For you personally, why dust? How did you get into studying dust? Okay, that's a fair question. So by now you figured out I have a strange accent. I grew up in Hungary. I got my degree in nuclear physics. <laughs> in Hungary? At, that's right, in 1980 at the Central Research Institute for Physics. And then uh, there was an offer that you could become a, a PhD student. Uh, but they don't care for nuclear physics, but we're gonna spend probes to a comet, Comet Heli. Two Soviet uh, Russian probes, Vega 1 and Vega 2, was ta uh, taking off to have a comet encounter, and they need a theory person to tell the mission and make the instruments design, help with the instrument design, how and what to measure and how to learn what the measurements would tell you. Uh, and that was in 1980. <laughs> and in 1982, I got a degree. And the, f the comets, at least in my life, where it says you have a lot of electrons and ions, you have a lot of dust. That's a region where plasma physics is somewhat different. So at least for me, that's how dusty plasma physics started. And you were excited about the comets? Or uh, I, I mean, it was incredible just to say, we're going to build a tinker magic and it's going to make measurements hundreds of thousands of kilometers away. And it will send the data back and you will figure out what it means. <laughs> I says, are you kidding me? <laughs> to, uh, sign me up. So sign me up. And then this whole... so. Physicists, of course, we, we have our own word. I can entertain myself with equations and my computer all day. But when you can work with, with engineers and people who can uh, build stuff and make it work, and then you continuously argue that I would like to be a bit more capable, and then he, will, he or she will tell you, that would be wonderful. It will take you 10, much more, 10 times more mass or power, or you don't have money for it. So this constant argument of optimizing what we could do with the amount of time and money and resources that we have that would still deliver good science. And then, of course, my job as a, as, as a, like on, in LDEX, I'm the principal investigator, is how to write a proposal that would convince the audience that these are the right measurements and you do it for a fair amount of money and you could do it in time and you will deliver what you promise. So it's kind of a, uh, it's a very interesting multidimensional Tetris game that everything has to fall in in, in, uh, in, 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 in place. And when the data comes down, that is just uh, Christmas every day. <laughs> Did you learn about the comet? We learned about the comet, and actually for me, the other eye-opening things, this is 1980, 1981, 
is uh, that was a period with difficulties between the countries involved, the Soviet Union, Europe, and the U.S. And you know, every single scientist from all of these countries came to Hungary, Budapest, uh, and we had incredible discussions and uh, politics were set aside and there was a huge international collaboration because based on the little cameras built in my institute, the European Giotto mission took incredible color images and it was just a beautiful collaboration with all countries involved, including all the US scientists that uh, didn't have a chance to send spacecraft to this comet because that was a budget cut issue <laughs> at the time as well. But nevertheless, it, it was great. It was, a, it was just an exciting, big international holiday for everyone involved. And the missions went very well. There was two Soviet, there was Joto from Europe, and there was at least two Japanese spacecraft. And everybody was just delighted. And that was actually the roots of the Rosetta mission, or some of it, it relates now to the upcoming mission, isn't it? In the fall, you have an encounter with a comet that was on its way for a decade. The instruments are waking up, everything is working. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a full circle back to comets now. There will be a lot of dust, there's a lot of plasma, there's a lot of interesting physics that we're going to learn from Rosetta. So yes, we're going to crash on the 21st <laughs> in a couple days, but dust is still, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of excitement all around. Anyway, I could show you these wiggly lines and then you could see how the isotopes show up at different places. Really, based on the mass yes. of the particle. But uh, I mean, we have to convince NASA or someone else to buy one of these from us <laughs> and then we could fly it. Where would you want it to go? First choice. First choice. I would really like to stay nearby the Earth and I would like to look straight into the flow of interstellar material and I can tell you what the stardust is made out of. Sounds pretty cool. <laughs> What was, what was the term, um, is zodiac light? Zodiacal, oh yes, zodiacal light is... Zodiacal light, that's such the, a great term. Well, you, if you go camping and you see the, this bright white milk, the, that a lot of is just scattered light from the sun. The Milky Way, what we see is the Milky well, Way? Well, the Milky Way or? galaxy, that's somewhat different, but okay. when you... Uh, once in a while, when you see, you can identify the plane of the ecliptic, the plane where the planets go that plane is, gets brighter and somewhat more expanded when you, when you are moving towards the sun. And those are dust particles left behind by comets and asteroids, and they are slowly working their way towards the sun. They will spiral in in millions and millions of years. When you see uh, shooting stars, those are debris that comets and asteroid collisions are left behind, and they are all make up the night sky. the night sky differently now. I'm going to, think, <laughs> I'm going to look up at the night sky and I'm going to think all about dust. All of the dust. <laughs>